Welcome to Business Done Differently, where baseball team owner turned showman Jesse Cole speaks with successful entrepreneurs who stand out in business and in life by thinking differently and challenging the status quo. We believe whatever is normal, do the exact opposite, and that normal gets normal results. If you want to stand out and be different, this one's for you. I am honored to have Philip McKernan on the show today. Philip is the author of One Last Talk, Why Your Truth Matters and How to Speak It, and the founder of the One Last Talk movement. I had the privilege of hearing Philip speak at MMT, and I was blown away. He and his book provided me one of the greatest aha moments in my life. I am truly grateful to Philip for his impact and for joining me on the show today. Philip, welcome. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Apart from the fact I feel a little underdressed, but other than that, I'm, I'm delighted to be here. I think everyone feels that on our show today. I want to give a little context, Philip. I think uh, one last talk, and for the listeners, really, why the truth came out in your life and now how you're sharing it, because it's so important. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to have the Hollywood story, but the truth is I spent probably most of my life hiding and pretending to be and trying to be anybody but myself. And honestly, you know, I go back, I have a degree of compassion rather than just pure judgment. I was doing the best I could, and that's what I honestly thought I needed to do, is try to be strong, to try to be confident, to try to make money doing things I didn't want to do necessarily. And the pain eventually, as it always does, caught up with me, and it just became too exhausting wearing all those masks. I started this journey of removing them, and I continue to do that to this day and will for the rest of my life. So this channeling of the pain, I mean, not many people seem to be doing that. Like, how did the pain come out that you needed to channel it? Because we get into the business leaders. If everyone does that, they can have much more happiness. I think you say the greatest gift lies next to your greatest pain, which is so powerful. Share how that happened. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, there was this consistent pattern that many entrepreneurs and leaders recognize within themselves when they hear it. But at the time, I wasn't aware of it. So the story I was telling myself is when I build this business, then I'll have the freedom to go and do what I want. Then I'll be able to kind of start living to some extent, even though I didn't use that language at the time. And what was happening is I'd achieved something. So I was a great goal setter and I was a great achiever of those goals. The problem was I was setting goals that intellectually I thought I wanted and I did want, but they weren't things that were deeply aligned to who I was. So the metaphor I use is I'd get to the top of a mountain and literally looking out here and looking at mountains and I would achieve something. And I don't mean mountain as in running my own airline. So I'm talking like modest things, some significant things, writing a book, building a business, whatever. And I would get to that mountain and I would look around but the overwhelming feeling that would hit me as opposed to appreciation, gratitude, love, joy, whatever would be, oh, I thought it'd be different. I thought I'd feel better about myself, the world and who I am. And the reality is I didn't. So what I did, like many people, is I just created a new goal. In other words, look across the horizon and go, I just climbed the wrong mountain. When I climb that mountain, then I'll be happy. And it just never stops. And finally, I had the courage and the fortitude and also the pain to say, this is just not working. And what I found was I was just out of alignment with who I was as a man and as a, as a person and as a husband and ultimately, eventually, a father um, in this earth. And so, again, for people that don't know you that well, how did this come about? Like, So you realize this. What was the change you made? Yeah, and I think when, I don't want to say that I realized this in, a, in, a, in ashram in India or, or whatever, like it was a moment, but it was a continuation of just, and maybe I'm just a really slow learner, and I just kept getting hit over the head very slowly by the universe, and then finally the universe is just going to take you out of the knees, and that's kind of, I got there just before that, 
actually, I'll tell you the time that it, it kind of just dawned on me. So I was still chasing this idea of when I make enough money, then I'll go and do what I want to do. And I'm sitting in my mother's kitchen in Ireland. We've just come back from Canada. We spent two and a half to almost three years investing every dollar we had into a new real estate business to attract a lot of investors from Ireland into uh, Canadian real estate. And we had tons of money lined up, like big money. And this was going to be the home run. And we had spent two and a half years investing in legal structure, financing, um, you name it, you know how much those bills can be. And we were ready to open the doors for business. And the Irish economy, as indeed the US economy or whatever, what didn't go off, the Irish economy didn't go off a hill, it went off the edge of a cliff. And we were left with our brand, with our identity, with our company, our business structure, our legal structure, and all the bills associated with that. And it was over before it started. And I remember sitting, and this is not a story I share a lot, maybe because I'm still embarrassed about it, but whatever, but I remember sitting in the kitchen with my mother, my mother's home, and my wife looking at me and says, I'm not going back to Canada. And I said, why? She says, because it's just not working. And I can feel literally the emotion of that. Now, she wasn't having a go at me. She wasn't saying, you have failed. She just said, this is not working for us. And at that point, we had $200 in the bank account. And I can still feel the shame of that, that I put my family, my life, my wife in that predicament. And I'll never forget it. I looked at her and I said, can I use an F-bomb on this show? <laughs> if you'd like to, use it. I, I really don't even ask. I just said, I'm going to do this coaching thing. And it got so bad that I realized I had nothing left to lose. And I certainly didn't do coaching for money because... I didn't make money in this business for years, but this is what I always wanted to do deep down, but never felt qualified um, personally or academically to do what I do now. And I just got desperate and I said, screw it. And within about four minutes, I know I'm exaggerating entirely, but maybe 30 minutes, an hour, I got an email back because I sent an email out to 20 people and said, I'm doing this coaching thing. And this guy wrote back and said three words about effing time. <laughs> And I went back to him and says, what do you need? He says, from the moment I met you, this is what you were meant to do. I'll be your first client. And that's how it started. And what were you coaching? So basically, I had a clue. All I knew was I, I'm able to see the world in a way. I'm able to see people navigate the world in a way they simply cannot see for themselves. I've got an innate ability which comes with a burden and a, and a cost. I can see what's possible for people when they're unwilling to see it for themselves or unable to see it for themselves. And I can feel energetically how gifted they can be and where they can bring it but i don't tell them what they should do it's all about basically if i had to describe it is i help them come back to themselves and i help them understand themselves at the core they do the work and ultimately therefore what they need to do in this world to honor the essence of who they are and that is my skill set that's what i was born to do and it's taken me 46 years to be able to say that to you and for some it may not make sense but for me it makes complete sense. Well, you almost have to see it. I mean, Phil, I wasn't aware of you. I didn't know of you until I sat in that look room, that break, a little small room at MMT. And then all of a sudden I was like, who is this guy? I mean, you were just getting to the core of someone sitting right next to me. I was in the seat right next to the person. And within seconds, he's emotional, crying, and you got to the root. And it seems like so many people are so afraid to get there, but that's when you have the real awakening. And for me, and I shared to the listeners on previous episodes, when I heard that and read your book within those two days there, I changed my speech at a keynote. I went to Nashville, gave a keynote and told the truth and the challenges I had as a child and how I was alone and my parents divorced and the drug problems and everything. 
and how that's brought me to the highest clarity I've had in my life. That's why I do what I do. That's why I love it. That bringing people together and clarity, Philip, it seems like so few people have, but the only way to really get it to is if you know the root of what really gets you going. Is that what you found? Yeah, and also the other thing I just want to mention briefly, because I think it's really important, is you and I met through Jason, obviously, at, at MMT, and, and it sounds kind of trying to self-serve here, but it's like, whether it's me or anybody else, the fact that Jason has created that space in that event, because a lot of events, it's all about business, it's about Facebook ads, it's about marketing, it's about you know scaling, it's whatever, all valuable, incredibly valuable things. But Jason has insisted over the years in making sure that we're at least having this dialogue to make sure that we don't just build businesses that come at the detriment to our personal lives, that we kind of are successful in both areas. Um, so there's a lot of resistance to what I do and how I do it. And I think ultimately the resistance is not coming because people are resisting me, they're resisting themselves. They're afraid to ask very simple questions of themselves because ultimately I think they already know the answers. I'll give you a quick example that I just shared yesterday. I was at a workshop, a group of entrepreneurs, and this lady came in, and she had this story that she felt very, she had this story that she needed everyone to know. And the story was that she had her heart broken by this man. And we kicked off and I said, anyone want to share why you're here? And she put her hand up immediately and said, oh, well, I just had my, my heart ripped open and I don't know where I am in life and everything else. And you could see the energy in the room. She'd obviously gotten to everybody before we kicked off. And I eventually looked at her and I said, great. I said, just quick question. Did you see it coming? And she was absolutely not. Blindsided me. No one saw it coming. It just took me, cut my, cut my whole legs from under me. She had all the terminology. And I said, with respect, I don't believe you. And she started to look at me as if she wanted to rip my face up. She got so angry. And I said, bear with me. And I said, I know you want to kill me right now. But I said, just let us go of the anger. You are way too smart and way too intuitive to tell me you did not see something coming. And she dropped her head and she was vibrating. And then she lifted her head with tears pouring down her face. And she said, I knew it the day I met him. And I knew it the day he, I walked down the aisle. Wow. And everyone in the room up to that point was looking at me going, you're just being an ass. Will you leave her alone? She's hurt. She's in pain. She's had trauma. She's been hurt. Just back off. And I knew I could feel it from her that she was telling herself a story that allowed her to stay in that narrative, to stay in that circular conversation. And the thing about it is, do I get joy from exposing that? No, none. But I do knowing that when we identify the pattern, it will never reemerge. And I do the same with money. People talk about money, but we talk about money in some of our workshops about our relationship to money. And I ask people, like, we go deeper on the relationship to money. They understand how they really hold money, not just intellectually, but emotionally, because that can completely conflict. Then they understand why sabotage comes in. They understand why... They create businesses and they don't ever achieve the financial results that they often say they desire. So it's just about going deeper, which is scary for some people. But I can guarantee you one thing. It is not even as close as painful as it is navigating this world, having never asked the questions that might seem painful at the beginning. There's no greater pain than living an unlived life. And that's what happens when you don't go deep enough and really understand who you are. It's so powerful, and I think you have to go into the tension. You talk about if you really want growth, you have to have tension. And you're providing that tension. You're getting people to ask questions that they never asked before. I mean, why are you here is such a great question to ask anybody at any point. Why are they here? And not the first answer they say. Yeah. And, and I think, Phil, one thing you talk about in the book, and it comes down a lot to loving yourself. 
I'm sure there's probably one common thread that you may see with a little, it's in this theme of the show, it's, it's love your customers more than you love your product, love your employees more than love your customers. But that all doesn't matter if you don't love yourself. And, yeah, and but we can't talk about this. This is way too fluffy. And this is like, we can't, can we talk about marketing or something? I'm joking. No, this I know. This is the essence. Yes. This is the essence because we give ourselves what we feel we deserve. And you've just nailed it. It is the essence. If you don't create, and if you told me this 10 years ago, five years ago, yeah. I would have just said, who, who are you? You're a fruitcake. Because I just didn't, it meant, it, it meant so little to me and it felt so fluffy and intangible. But if you don't have a healthy degree of self-respect and self-love for self, what's going to happen is you're going to look to business and you're going to look to external relationships for those things to validate who you are and to bring your happiness. And here's the problem. I believe that our happiness or fulfillment is derived by three relationships, the relationship to self, relationship to others, and the relationship to the work we do, which I feel should be an extension of who we are. Here's the problem. If you don't have genuine self-love and respect for self, you can't help but put an inordinate amount of expectations on those other two areas to fill the gap within you. Your wife then has to be perfect. Your husband has to be perfect. The cast has got to be perfect. And the work you do has got to succeed. And that energy of having to make it successful actually has the desired, so the opposite result sometimes because it's almost you're approaching it from a scarcity. But when you create a degree of self-respect and self-love, which requires you to do deep interior work on yourself, what ends up happening is everything starts to flow a little bit easier, or in some cases, a lot easier. 100%. I've seen that. How do we get over the fact that it's everyone sees it as fluff? I mean, when I speak, I go into, I've changed. I go into loving yourself as the third piece of a lot of my keynotes. And I can see there are eyes that roll. It's that thought process. And I'm like, are you kidding me? If I'm not the best for myself, good luck leading everyone else. Good luck. How do we make this where it's not just fluff, where people can actually measure and understand? Is there a way to teach this so the business leaders listen here and it's like turning off? Oh, I don't want to talk about this. Give me exact science on how to be successful in business. What do you suggest? Good luck. How's it working for you? Good. No, seriously. Good luck. I'm not here to do is wake up the people who don't want to be woken up. I'm not here to do that. Because what ends up happening is when I spend, not that I don't care about those people, it's not that there's not a place in my work for those people or in life. What I'm saying is that those people, unfortunately, sometimes need to fall before they realize or hit a wall or hit some sort of wake-up call. And there's two types of people that come to me. The people who want to be historically being reactive. In other words, they finally hit a wall. They've achieved everything they thought they'd achieve in business, and it's still not enough. The person who hits a wall emotionally or mentally or the person who has some sort of breakdown in a relationship, their kid becomes estranged from them, they become estranged from their partnership, and then finally they go, geez, where's that guy McKernan's number? Where's his number? I better give him a call. But now what's happening is a whole new wave of people are saying, I don't want to wait for that. I want to know I'm on the right path. I want to know I'm making the right decisions. I want to make sure that I'm cultivating that internal dialogue, that intuitiveness. I want to make sure that I have self-respect so I can allow people to respect me and I can love them in ways that I could never do before. So what's happening is people are being productive. But here's the thing. When I focused on those people that didn't want to wake up, that were defiant, that were looking for holes in my work, that were sitting there with their arms crossed, I was pouring my life into these people. going, If you could just see how amazing you could be. And then now what I go is, with respect, I see that you're not ready. That's okay. Maybe it's me. Maybe it's my work. Maybe it's right. Now, if you could just stand aside. There's 25 people just beyond you with their hands up saying, I want to learn and I don't have it all figured out. 
And I don't want to wait till that darkness comes. I want to be proactive. And what ends up happening is when you let that other person go, that's the very time that they go back and go, well, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't want to miss out here. Um, but I've had to let them go. So I would say, how's it working for you? It's working amazing and you've got great peace of mind and you've got success in business and you've got success in life and everyone else gives you that back and you're, you know deep down you're on the right path. Brilliant. But if you're sitting there knowing that you're not and your antidote to escape is busyness and you're avoiding it, Good luck, because it will always come out. The disconnectedness will always appear physically, mentally, or emotionally. It's always going to come out. 100%. It can't not. Simon Sinek was recently asked, he said, uh, have you ever had a bad speaking engagement? He goes, no. And they're like, what do you mean? No, never once. He goes, no, I only speak to groups that believe in what I believe. And I actually get in front of the people that are the people that want to be there. So many of us try to make those people that already don't believe in us happy, as opposed to the people that are already with us. And that makes so much sense. And I love the letting go. You talk about that a lot in the book, One Last Talk. But I want to go just simply into uncovering your truth. Because I think if you can really simplify going into this One Last Talk, it's how to uncover your truth. And I know it happened for me in just 30 minutes with you, but how can someone do that today? Yeah, to me, it's. I think we all know what our truth is. I think one of the biggest stumbling blocks is the idea that we have to present that to anybody, including ourselves. And I feel that that's the biggest challenge. People often avoid clarity because the clarity requires them to change, requires them to do something different, requires them to admit that what they've been doing is not working. So it's not necessarily the subject matter of truth. It's, it's what it represents. It's like, it's like keynote speaking. People say the biggest fear in the world is speaking. And I never liked that. It never sat with me. And then I went away and I do what I do. I take what are either things that are given things that have been researched and proved technically or intellectually are things that are complex. And I sit with them and I navigate them and I mess with them and I massage them and I experiment. And I come out the other side and went, it is not the fear. The fear is, goes beyond the speaking. The speaking represents, it is the gateway into the fear. The fear ultimately is that I'll make a mistake, which means people may not like me. And if people don't like me, maybe they won't love me. So it's really, it's about acceptance. So if you can name the fear, if you can actually, I'm working with a sports team uh, this coming weekend, and they've asked me to do a talk with the players ahead of their opening game in this premier uh, soccer league. I'm going to speak about one of the things I want to talk about is fear. What are you afraid of in front of the, the audience tomorrow? The biggest crowd many of these players have ever played in. What are you ultimately afraid of? And one of them, the goalkeeper is going to say, what if I spill the ball? One of the guys says, what if I give away a penalty? What if I miss the goal? What if I score an own goal against my own team? And what I'm going to do is just help them navigate beyond what would that mean to them? Help them name the fear. And what happens is the fear doesn't go away. It just loosens its grip on you. It just lets you go. But the problem today is we're all too busy trying to eradicate fear and kill it and squash it. And it's impossible. It should be something that is embraced. Get to know it. Understand it. Name the fear so it loosens its grip and you can therefore live. And it doesn't influence you the way it did previously, if that makes any sense. So like, for instance, for me, I know it's that fear of I felt alone, I didn't feel loved a lot. And so now I try to get more of that love, probably validation, try to get that support and try to make more people feel that because I didn't get that. So it'll always be a part of me if we're going direct here, because I think this will be good for the business leaders. If that is direct with me, just understand it and maybe understand, all right, that's probably why I'm doing this. That's probably why that's influencing this action as opposed to just being not confronting it. Is that? I'm yeah. trying to get there. Okay. 
Well, there's too many people that I need go, yeah, yeah, and I realized I read this book and I realized I was uh, alone, alone as a kid and I went to therapy for six sessions. And you know what? I've done that work and it was great and it was very beneficial. And I go, we need to have done the work. And I go, oh, no, that's, I, I'm, I'm over that now. And I go, no, you're not over it. And, and that the most dangerous person in the world is the person that thinks they're beyond it. So what you're saying beautifully and poetically and from a humanistic standpoint is that you're saying that it's a part of who I am. And while identifying it, you know, maybe lessens the emotion or the charge, let you understand who you are and why you do what you do. But it's the acceptance and to realize that it's a part of who I am, it has been a part of who I am, and therefore will always be a part of who I am. The problem is other people are denying that. So think about what they're doing. They're denying, let's just say we've all done something in our lives we're ashamed of. What a lot of us do is we go to denying of that thing. We try to reject it out of our bodies or squash it into a part of our bodies that we don't need to examine. And what happens is you start to deny a part, literally, of who you are. And therefore, then people wonder why they don't live from a place of peace or they don't trust their intuition. Why would you trust your intuition? Because you don't trust yourself. Yeah. So self-trust is this thing that we never think about. We always think about trust as something external. I asked a group of people recently, do you trust yourself? And almost everyone went, yeah, absolutely. I said, no, whoa, 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 that was way too fast. Let's just examine what does it mean to trust? And do you really trust yourself? And with tears in some of their eyes, anger in others, neutrality in the rest, most of them said, one is I never thought about it. And number two is my mom's. The answer to the question would be no. I thought about trust as something, my wallet, my kids, something external. How do we get ourselves to a point where we truly trust ourselves? That's a magical place to be in. It's fascinating. Oprah's done a lot of talks and she says, or one of her main themes is be yourself, be yourself, be yourself. Well, if you don't know who you are, what does that mean? And I think you have to really get to it to understand. I mean, be yeah. yourself. That sounds great. I want to be me, but I don't know who I am. And once you can finally find that, and I know this is so off kilter of what a normal show for me is business done differently, but it's so important that people understand what drives them, who they are, their truth. And then they start sharing it. And I'll share this with you, Philip. After I shared with my team, the challenges I went through, I never, a few of them started crying. All right, got emotional just hearing that. So it was definitely uncomfortable for not just me, but the group. But they started coming to me and sharing more. I remember the owner of the first team that I had that I was so close with. He actually married my wife and I. I shared that with him 12 years after I got to know him. And then he started sharing me his childhood and what he went through. This was 12 years of being one of my closest confidant mentors, friends. And we didn't know all that about each other. And you're talking about success from any facet of life. It's the closeness the togetherness and the realness, the truth. And I just I, I, I just want to stress this. That's why this is so deep, more than any conversation I've had. But people need to do it. I'm going to break up the deepness with a game here, and we're going to get back into it, Philip. So if you're mentally prepared, we're going to do a quick game. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, this we do at our ballpark. It's called Sing in the Blank. All right. So actually, I'm going to no, let's do this. I'll do it. We'll go into that. I'm going to do a truth and then a dare. What do you want? Truth first or dare? Truth. Truth. All right. We'll start with the truth. All right. What's one thing that's still holding you back? You know what the challenge is a lot of people. What's still holding you back? Is allowing myself to be as successful as I know deep down I can be. And I mean successful in terms of the impact I can make in the world. So almost thinking you don't deserve it at this point? Yeah. Or, and also the other thing that I've just realized recently is there's a part of me that, you know, I love my parents so much that there's a part of me that doesn't want to supersede my parents in terms of success or monetary success because I don't want them to see me differently. Wow. All right. So that's deep. Now you ready for your dare? Yeah. Okay. So sing in the blank. We do this in our ballpark. 
2,000 fans singing against 2,000 fans. So when the song stops, you have to finish that song lyric, okay? I can only imagine this Irish tone coming from you. So when the song stops, you have to finish that song lyric, okay? You're going to sing the song? No, you are. I'm going to play it. Okay. So I'm going to play the song. When it stops, you have to finish what that next lyric is, okay? I never sang in my life once. (laughs) I was in school. I can't sing for shit. All right. Well, that's good. We've had everybody, you know, a lot of your friends have sang on this show, and it's very interesting. So have you seen The Greatest Showman? Uh, yes, I think I have. All yeah, right. partly because my kids were watching it one night. Yeah. This is one of the most famous songs. If you don't know it, I'll join in, but it's fitting to what we're talking about. You ready? Here we go. This is it. Yes, yes. (laughs) This is me. This is me. You were there. You knew what was happening. You got it. You got it. Uh, Yeah, no, singing is Irish are known for like amazing singers and poets and writers. Singing did not happen in my home at all. (laughs) Either did 4,000 fans in our ballpark every night. Believe me, it's an ugly scene. But um, you got it. So that song, This Is Me, is about coming out for not being seen, for being heard, being who you are. It's in The Greatest Showman. It's where all the misfits come out and say, this is me. And they come ah, out to the okay. world. Well, you, you, you touched on something before we went into exposing the fact that I cannot sing for shit. Um, and that is one of the things you hear often when people are about to do a speech or a best man speech is, hey, just be yourself. Yeah. And you talked about, that sounds great, but in theory, people haven't a clue what that is. And I think the mistake that people make is they think that who they are is what they've done. Or they think that who they are is what they do. They think that who they are is what they've been told and who they are is the environment in which they're brought. And we as human beings are so much more than that. Um, So, for example, in Ireland, when you grow up, you don't get a choice about what religion you want to believe in. You're told you're a Catholic primarily, and that's it. I'm told I'm this and told I'm that. The example I use is when I walk down through the corridors of my schooling, my traditional school, hundreds of doors and geography and history and biology and Irish and everything else. There wasn't one door that said, come on in and get to know who you are. And it is a tragic thing that most people just identify themselves primarily through the work or the businesses that we create. And the problem is when that goes away or you sell those things, then you're lost. And parents, particularly mothers, who say goodbye to their kids when they're going to college, close the door, look at the mirror, and they just go, now who are you? Who are you now? And they may turn around and see their husband, who may or may not be in the house, and go, I recognize your face, even though it looks older, but I don't know who you are either. And it's a huge issue for people when it comes to identity. And what happens is we don't realize how we lose ourselves whether it's in sport, whether it's in business. And it's it's something that we should be thinking about sooner rather than later. 100%. That song was so perfectly picked because it's about it's not about what they did. It wasn't about their jobs. It was about just who they are, how they were built. And that's it. And they were saying, this yeah. is me. And it's such a powerful song. And I think about that a lot of retirees die pretty soon yes. after. The stats are unbelievable because basically their identity, their who they were was linked to this job that they no longer have. Let's go hopeful now. Let's go into the positive aspect. What do we do? All right. We know we all have problems. We know we all have challenges. We know we're scared to face them. What do we do? Share them. And that's where one last talk comes in. Ultimately. 
We ran one last talk very recently in a prison. We also ran it in an organization. So if somebody is just barely hanging on to this interview and going, hang on a second, where's the business stuff? When's the business stuff going to kick in? The business stuff kicked in the minute you and I started speaking, because this is all about business. This is about, I can cite so many entrepreneurs and leaders that I've worked with in the past or work with today, whose businesses are going like this, but they're going like this, not to the detriment of their own mental health. They've never felt more aligned. So we brought one last talk into an organization. Um, doesn't matter about the details, but four speakers spoke in front of their entire team. And what ended up happening was it opened everybody up because there's a whole body of research, and I can't remember the name of it, that is, did a deep dive into what people are looking for in a workplace, in an environment, in a company. And what they're looking for are three essential things. They're looking to feel competent in what they do. They're looking to feel authentic in their own lives. And they're looking to feel connected to themselves and other people in the organization. And I don't believe, I think indirectly we can help with competence, but that's not a core skill set of ours. But we can definitely help with authenticity and connection. And whether we like it or not, the ability to connect, and particularly in the world today, as many organizations are, have a more of a remote element to them, like you're working remotely or whatever, is a lot of people's lives and social lives evolve in, in the workplace. So they don't have lots of friends because of this Thinking in the United States, people move, they move into Boulder, they come from Chicago, and the people they know is their work colleagues. And they want this dialogue beyond how's your dog and what's the local dentist that you recommend I use. They want to go, to, not every day, but they want to have an opportunity. And what we have found is that we can deliver two out of those three through the lens of one last talk, and it's working. And we even did it in a prison where one of the men spoke, an inmate stood up with tears pouring down his face and said, I've known you for 15 years inside, and I never realized how lonely you are and how lonely I am because of what you just shared. And the two of them embraced and hugged each other, and it was just extraordinary. So we're talking about a different level of connection. And then some people say, hey, that's not my responsibility. That's not, when I open, I go to work in the morning. That's not my responsibility. So I get the whole element. I think it's kind of cool. I get it, but it's not for me. My job is to pay them create a good environment, put a pool table in the corner, make sure they've got fresh coffee, give them good health benefits, and that's great. You may not be your responsibility, but I promise you one thing, it is your problem. Because it is also massively weighing on things like attrition, loyalty, and productivity. So what we're finding is that companies that connect like that, you don't have to watch each other. You don't have to check to see if they're doing the work. Each other's backs, attrition goes down. Like in other words, you're not losing as many people. You're not turning over staff, so therefore you don't have to recruit as many people and train them. And the other thing is people become more productive and supportive in the organization. We call it team deepening. So we literally trademark team deepening because we believe the future is not team building, it's team deepening. I love it. Create moments that show people that they matter, and that will provide deeper meaning. Moments matter meaning. However, if you don't really know your people, if you don't know what really provides meaning to them, and really what moments matter, then how are you going to do that? And so it's, again, you have to understand your people. And so I guess, well, first, we've gone so far into this. Can you quickly explain the one last talk for the people like, all right, this sounds great. Well, what is it? Yeah. So basically, think about TED for emotions. One last talk is you get 15 minutes or less to stand on a stage and share the one last talk you'll ever give to the world, assuming that you were about to die. It sounds morbid or sounds negative, but what it does is it opens the heart and focuses the mind. And you don't have to deliver it in front of a live audience. But what we encourage is everybody to go through the process, the book, 
extract their own one last talk for their benefit to understand who you are, to begin to uncover the essence of who you are. And we encourage those people to deliver that talk to at least one other person, maybe their organization, maybe their community, and maybe the world, who knows. And I'm guessing what's holding back a lot of leaders, even myself, that I didn't share the whole one last talk, I shared my challenges and what I went through, is the fear, again, maybe of acceptance of what people will think. Because I'm thinking right now, that's such a deep level for our organization. We're so have fun and enjoy, like that's at a whole deep level. What are you finding the fear and why people won't do this with their organization? Is it similar to what I'm saying? Absolutely, bang on. One, one thing, though, is you don't have to rip the Band-Aid off. Well, we encourage people to go to an edge and maybe just slightly beyond it, but sometimes people jump off the edge and try to deliver something or share something that they themselves haven't processed or sat with long enough or it's just fresh within them. We don't want people to be disrespectful to themselves or, or an audience. That's not the purpose of this. It's not about downloading. It's about sharing something that you have identified, you understand in yourself, a part of your narrative that perhaps people don't know about you. And here is the irony of this, is that people are afraid of judgment. People are afraid of not being accepted. But the thing is, I guarantee you, you're not being accepted anyway because you haven't shared all of you. You're being accepted to the level in which you're allowing people to see you. That's the only way people can accept you. But we have found is when you go all in, people can see all of you and therefore choose to accept you. And here's what happens is everyone accepts you because they see you for who you really are. They choose to accept you and to honor you. And also they see who you are within themselves. They see the challenge that they themselves are holding back. So this is the mechanism that we believe, and I really mean this, I'm not, this is not just advertising. I really believe this is probably one of the greatest ways, mechanisms, methodologies to connect people in humanity. And I've experimented. We brought people to India. We brought parent child to like orphanages. And that, that's incredibly powerful to watch your parent and your child watch each other connect with orphans and street kids and people with you know, mental disabilities. You learn a lot about each other. But one last talk is brought to a different level. I love the, all the examples you gave in your book. One was the, the Matthew. And he part of his talk was, I don't make as much money as most of you in here. But I'll tell you what I do make. I make my wife laugh every day. I make damn sure each one of my kids knows that I love them unconditionally. I'm now making sure I'm a little more true to myself, a little more kinder to myself, a little more compassionate to myself. I believe that myself and all of you, everyone on this planet, we're all put here to make a difference in this world in our own unique way. I believe that's what I now make. So powerfully said. And again, it's not about all those things that business leaders think about constantly. And that is unbelievable truth that that resonated with me. I was like, man. How can you not accept and love and respect Matthew for who he is and all of us aspire to be like that? And it's just, it's very, very unique. And I think the self-diagnosis is so important, Philip. Would you suggest these leaders try to go through this? I mean, is there, I'm just thinking, I know people are listening. It's like, all right, I know it's important, but what do I do? Did Other than get the book and go through it, did they just self-diagnose like, and say, all right, here's my challenges? What do you suggest? Well, I think the book is designed, it's not a, a to-do, even though it is, it's a why-to. Yeah. So a lot of it is about why you should deliver your one last talk. And I would go as far as to say, with respect to anybody listening, that's still on the fence, because one of the biggest things that happens that is triggered when somebody is even contemplates the idea of a one last talk is they go, I don't have a one last talk. Or, or you know, I do maybe, and I'm sure everyone has one, but you know what? It's not as cool as John's. I go, John, oh my God, you should talk to John. So I would encourage people to ignore that dialogue, which all is intellectual, all comes to your brain. And I would encourage them to go through the book because the book is designed to bring you through the one last talk process. Um, that's number one. Number two is if something comes up through that process that you feel needs some sort of attention, 
I mean, I do a lot of other deeper coaching work. Or you go to a therapist, or you go to you know, go to a friend, share it with it, etc. But there's nothing more powerful and cathartic and therapeutic than actually sharing that truth with your team, with your organization. And for some people, that's a stretch. Some people, it's not a fit. But for those who actually go all out like you did and share a good part of your one last talk or what came up for you, all it does is create connection. It doesn't undermine you. It doesn't undermine your organization. It actually has the opposite effect. And what we're going to be doing is adding other components into this in the future and not too far away where we're going to be able to create some leadership stuff where we want companies to be able to self-run this in their organization so it doesn't rely on me coming in or whatever. And so we're going to be offering additional support as well um, down the line as we grow this. You know, I think what it teaches more than anything, you hear, you want to, people say what they want about him, but Gary Vaynerchuk says his one biggest thing for success, it's not necessarily hustle, it's self-awareness. And yep. this is a masterclass in self-awareness further than anyone else can get. It's through this, this exercise. And I think that's just what's so powerful. And I guess, Philip, when I heard you speak, you got aggressive, you got combative in a good way. I wonder about that from a leadership standpoint. Why do you do that? Because maybe us as leaders, we're too scared to actually challenge our people in a way that really cares for them. Because I could feel you cared for everyone in that room, even though it was uncomfortable because no one said those type of questions and that type of aggression. Yeah, and I appreciate saying that because that, that is something that gets really deeply misunderstood in, in me and, and this world is often people think that I'm aggressive and there's a charge. It's, it comes from a place of this absolute deep desire and love for humanity, this belief that I think a lot of us are surrounded by people who tap us on the shoulder and they go, Jesse, it's going to be okay. You know, typically our mothers or whatever, and they mean the best. But like my little son came home, he's, he was eight, I think at the time, he came home with a painting from school. And he walked in, he said, Mom, what do you think? And his mother, my wife, said, oh, Charlie, it's just amazing. And Charlie looks at her and goes, I don't believe you. And my wife was devastated. She goes, what? What do you mean you don't believe? She goes, Mom, everything I show you is amazing. She goes, because you're amazing. I love everything you do and everything you are. And I don't turn and say, hey, it's crap, but I just have a slightly different relationship with him. So if we play soccer or he plays, he asks me my honest opinion. And I'll always hear from him first, but then I'll tell him the truth. And he may not always like it, but he knows he's going to get the unfiltered, unapologetic truth. And I think we need that in our lives. And a lot of leaders make this critical mistake. They say things like, oh, but I have an open door policy. You know, if my door's open, anyone can walk in and give me feedback. Anyone who says they love feedback as long as the feedback validates what they think or what they feel about themselves or their life. And if it pushes an edge a little bit, but if someone hears feedback that they don't want to hear, most leaders passively aggressively dismiss that. So why I believe the way I work works is because I'm willing. I don't like it because I'm like everyone else. I want to be liked. But I'm willing for one of my clients to hate me temporarily, hopefully, or even long term in order to get them to see a part of their truth that they're hiding from so they can be a better person far beyond the work they do with me because I don't want them to become reliant on me. And I don't think enough of us have that in our own lives. We don't have that person that is comes from a deep, compassionate place who's willing to challenge you. And it comes again, same things. It's very simple if you look at it. It comes down to fear, why we don't do that. You wrote, fear is the assassin of dreams. The ultimate destination of fear is regret. We have fear of doing this, how it'll make us feel, what people will think. And then I think I love, Philip, what you did with your children. It's like, you speak the truth to them. Because, and you said this before, speak your truth and then keep speaking it for the rest of your life. It would be so not you if you're telling everyone to speak your truth and you're saying, oh, it's a beautiful painting you did. Like, you have to be honest. But it makes it probably all decisions 
no filters, just real. And it's not exhausting. It makes so much sense and every leader should do this. So my question to you, is there any questions that we can ask ourselves? Like I always have this, I believe if you want better answers in life, you got to ask better questions. What are the best questions you're asking? Well, you just, you just inspired one straight away. Do you lead, do you lead, do you show up at home and show up in business the same person? And if the answer to that question is no, or even you pick your battle subtly, there's an absolute misalignment. And I don't want to be dramatic and say you're totally misaligned because you're not. But if you show up in business, in other words, the conversation I sometimes have is, how's your confidence? And some people will say, when I'm on the pitch in sport, when I'm, I'm on the track, when I'm in the pool or I'm in the office, I feel like super confident. When I get home, I doubt or vice versa. Well, there's something misaligned. So who you are in the business and who you are in the bedroom and the boardroom should be exactly the same person. There should be no discrepancies. And if you can't ask that question, I would encourage you to go deeper on that. Another question that I spent six months literally crafting, because I was trying to design a question that got people to speak, to, to identify their truth, but without the urgency to execute. Because if I said to you, we do an exercise, which by the way, I think everyone should do, write your one last letter. The last letter you'll ever write, take one piece of computer paper, write the one last letter, and then people say, who am I writing it to? Whoever you want. What am I going to say? Whatever you want. And I would encourage you to do that now. I would encourage you to write your one last letter. Who do you want to write it to? And what do you want to say? Now, if I told 100 people to do that, 100 people would do it. But if I said before that, and by the way, when you do it, we're all going to share it, you won't go as deep. So I designed this question, which I think has created some of the greatest dialogue with some of my coaching clients. What do you know deep down you need to do? But for whatever reason, you're just not ready to do it. And that's okay. What do you know deep down you need to do? But for whatever reason, you're not ready to do it right now. And that's okay. Because a lot of people are afraid to identify their truth because they think they therefore have to act upon it. But this allows you to identify your truth, where you might be out of alignment, where you know you need to show up more or differently in life. But it's giving you permission to not have to do it today but it's asking you not to judge because when there's judgment present, there is zero growth. And I find that if we could listen, assuming we're working on ourselves and doing some really good inner work, if we could go back and listen to how we spoke about ourselves or to ourselves and about ourselves to ourselves in two or three years from now, if we could go back to today, you would be appalled at the way in which you think about yourself or maybe even speak about yourself privately or maybe sometimes even in public. And we are the greatest bullies. When that judgment is there, there's no room for growth. There's absolutely, it's not possible to grow. You know, it's interesting because two years ago, I started writing every morning. That was part of my ritual. And I was writing to myself. No, I was expecting, it was like a journal, just like anyone. No one, I was expecting no one to read it. So I got real pretty quickly. And, you know, I've done exercise. I wrote a letter to my child before they were born. I wrote a letter to myself a year later and started doing this, not into the depth of one last talk, but I think teaching people to just start writing a little bit and you get to clarity. I mean, everyone, everything we all need in life is clarity. If we can get clear on who we are and what we need to do, it's everything. And people don't put the time in focusing on their self and their own clarity. So I think that right there, that one last letter, everyone can do that. And the question is, who would it be to is really interesting. Because mm-hmm. if someone who's written to, are you writing to yourself? Are you writing to your parents? Are you writing to your kids? I'm sure. Have you seen it just kind of the whole wide range? I see the spectrum, and one thing we encourage people not to do is to write a letter to the Trump administration <laughs> talking about the things they love or are frustrated with. That That's not a one-last letter. It can be a one-last letter, but we're talking about going kind of deeper, going within yourself. I find that there's a little anecdotal story that's a true story of the gentleman who went to the hospital to say goodbye to his father. His father was dying, 
the doctor comes out and it says it's time and he goes, he's passing away. And the doctor goes, no, 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 he's probably another 24, 48 hours. He says, it's time for the conversation. And the son looks at the doctor and says, what conversation? And the doctor says, the conversation you probably should have had 20 years ago. And what we're trying to do is not create urgency, because I'm not a big fan of urgency, but we're trying to create intention. We're trying to create, influence people to consider what are the conversations, what are the truths, what are the things they want to say to themselves now and other people now, rather than waiting, if we're fortunate enough to even have an opportunity to share them on our deathbed. Many of us wait till we're almost dying to say sorry. We wait till we're dying to name a regret and to forgive ourselves. We wait till we're almost dying to allow our, our family and our kids and the people we know closest to us how much they mean to us. I don't want to wait. And I think that's where the, call it aggression, but I actually call it complete care of why I'm so determined with people and why, and again, maybe it's practice, but like the speed in which I can navigate and help somebody. The reason I, is we don't have the time to spend five years working on this shit. There's so many great things we can be doing, even if it's sitting on a park bench with our loved one, sitting on a park bench on our own. There's, we just don't have the luxury, I believe. I assume, leaving whatever spiritual beliefs you have, I'm assuming, I hope I'm wrong, but I'm assuming this is it. And I think there's too many people that are using spirituality or religion as a way to go, hey, I'm going to come back as a unicorn or cliff jumper or an entrepreneur, I'm going to come back in some capacity. So there's not that intentionality that's required to live every second today. I assume that I'm not coming back. And if I come back as a snake or a worm or a cat or a cow, it's all a bonus. But that's how I live my life. It's interesting. I'm just trying to think of simplifying even more. It's like, if you were to write, what will you regret? I mean, even just starting and looking at regrets, like what could you potentially regret? Then it gets to the root. Because I mean, regret is such a terrible feeling that no one wants to have. And everyone now is having it on a daily basis because of the fear of missing out. It's this little tiny regrets. But we're talking real deep, big regret. It's just fascinating. All right, this scares me. So I'll probably do it here. Philip, flip the script. So you're now the host. You can ask me one question here. And based on the questions I've heard you ask, this scares the crap out of me. But you can ask one question. and That's it. <laughs> I've never been asked this before. I've never shy in questions. I told you I'm not the typical show, man. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't have to be deep. It could be simple. Believe me. Yeah, I'm just Chief Tucker, Tucker, who wrote the foreword of the book, just asked me a silly question about my tuxedo. But you could go any route you want. What if I turn the question back on you? What if I asked you, what is the one thing you know deep down you need to do? But for whatever reason, you're not ready to do it right now, which seems like maybe too big a question right now. But I'm just curious. No, that is a big question. But I have a challenge. I'm obsessed with what I do. I love it. A passion. And I think it... Uh, can sometime take me away from my focus on my family. And I love my family to death, but I get so focused on that. And I think I want to find a way that I can be so in love with being with my family as I am with the business. So I need to continue to work that because obviously, Philip, and this is openness in front of my whole audience, I still need that love from others, that feeling of 4,000 people, that feeling that it's just feel alive because when I was a kid, I didn't have that. And I'm still trying to make my dad proud. I'm still today, 35 years old, trying to make my dad proud. So I think the one thing I need to do is continue to get closer to having that marriage between everything. And I don't know the answer. That's a really tough question. I mean, I went through this one last talk. I think I understand it. But what are those next steps? I'm yeah. getting hot now. It's uncomfortable. Here's one for you. And we can take this offline. I'm happy to support. That's why we lost 100%. So even if it just starts with you and I getting on a call for an hour, we can have a chat about that. 
I just want to offer that uh, in case it doesn't, I don't get a chance to do so. But I really appreciate your honesty. Um, I think that's one, there's something we, I think what ends up happening is energetically, a lot of us end up creating business, creating movements, because it is driven by this thing that we often didn't have in our kids. And, and there's an energy that a lot of us have is that we end up creating, running from what we don't want or sprinting to what we need, we think we need. And I think there's a time and an opportunity in life to take a step back. And I see this in the world of, like, for example, when I work with athletes, and I don't do a lot of work with athletes, but I do some. And I went to the Olympic Games and I remember talking to two parents and I was intrigued. I just, I wasn't setting them up. I was just intrigued. I said, what is it like to watch your son compete for his country? And the first father said, that's like every other race. And this giant of a man, this athlete who's you know, dedicated his entire life to this, I could have punched him in the stomach and he would have had the same. He was just deflated. And I went to the next father and I was intrigued to see, is this an anomaly or what's going on? And the next father said, when I said, what is it like to watch your son compete? And he just said, yeah, he could have gone faster, couldn't he? It just dawned on me. These two men who would tell you the story that they're doing this for the love of the sport or their country. It's not that they hated the sport or hated the country, but they were doing it because they still yearned their father to turn around to them and say, I love you. And I nailed, let's just say, a fairly well-known sports person recently who was denying this. And I said, okay, you win, you get through the playoffs, you win the cup. There's 70,000 people in the stadium. And he was in my home about a week ago. You pivot and you want to catch eye contact with one person in the audience, in the entire stadium. And he says, ha, ah, my mom. And yet up to that point, he was denying that he was doing anything to please his mom. There's nothing wrong with that yeah. at all. But where it doesn't serve you is when we're not aware of it. Yeah. And therefore, our motivations, we think are ours, but they're not. They're kind of external. So it's finding that balance. And when you understand that, then what happens is we can let go of our grip in terms of what we do and our identity around it. It doesn't mean we're not as committed. It doesn't mean that, in your case, the team is going to fall apart. And it means that it'll actually flourish and grow. But we can create a little bit more balance over here. Yeah. I think it's so powerful to letting go. I think that's so key. And yeah. And I, I bet you, you've done it so long, and I think there's so many parallels probably between people wanting love, feeling alone. There's probably lots of challenges trying to make their parents proud. or make, I mean, I'm sure there's just so many of those correlations, and it's why it's driving a lot of people. So I'm aware of that. I've never shared it that deep on here, but that's fine. Well, <laughs> that's what you do. Well, I deeply admire that for what it's worth. I really do, because to have the courage to have a community and to allow them to see you live is, is amazing. And I imagine the type of community that you attract is going to appreciate that. That's my assumption. Well, thank you. I think it goes into sharing the whole truth. So I'll finish here, Philip. I know we this could go on for a long time, but I usually finish with a few questions. But I guess I'll go here because it might go a different route. Is there one thing that you've done to stand out in business and in life? I've never given the world or our clients what they want. I've never followed trends. I've never created experiences that I feel people want and will pay for. I've always looked at what people need. And therefore, the world has not always responded initially. But I think over the long term, I think it's now beginning to really respond. So for example, one last talk is not something that people walk around thinking they need, but they want other things. But we created one last talk because we feel that's what the world desperately needs to create connection in a world that we're supposedly connected more than ever through the lens of media. But I feel loneliness is the greatest pandemic in the world right now. So I think the one thing I'm really proud of and I don't say that lightly, I don't use that word proud or pride in the context of my name often, is that I have stayed true to what I feel the world needs. And that has come at a price, has stunted our financial growth and stuff like that. 
but I'm very proud of that. Mm. If you were to tell your younger self something, what would you tell them? I would ask him to stop giving himself a hard time and stop being so cruel that life's going to beat you up to some extent enough. You just don't have to beat yourself up more than anybody else will. And then you're going to be safe. Being your biggest critic, is that you were the cruelest yeah. yourself? Yeah, I mean, horrendous, horrendous. Like the way I would speak to myself, I look at it with a lot of, I can feel the emotion coming up right now as opposed to the judgment, but the way I would speak to myself and the way I would feel about myself was just horrendous when I look back. This may kind of parlay into one last talk, but if you could simply say, how do you want to be remembered? What would you say? I want to be remembered as a guy, the catalyst who introduced many people to themselves for the first time ever. That's less about me and more about them. But I want to be remembered for somebody who dedicated his entire life to better bring humanity forward a little bit. But ultimately, and I've never, ever used that term before, but as the guy, the catalyst who created the space for you to find and just meet yourself for the first time in a very long time and therefore have the opportunity to continue to live that. It's amazing because you have such a huge focus on other people. And I've even heard, I heard somewhere you won't sign people's books because it's not about you. It's about them, right? The One Last Talk book is all about other people. It's, it's, I believe two things. One Last Talk is about the brave and courageous men and women who have given their One Last Talks and are going to give their One Last Talks. So I'm never going to sign a copy of that book, number one. Number two is somebody said to me recently who watched me work with them and they said, I've never seen anyone work the way in a coaching capacity you do. You're amazing. And I said, I'm not really. And they go, you're just being modest. And I said, well, I am being to some extent, but this work comes through me. And I don't mean like God or I'm not a very religious, I'm not a religious person at all, but it's coming through me. And I feel that if I have a gift, it's on loan from the universe until the day I die, the day I start abusing it. And my single biggest fear is what I see in almost every other public speaker and public figure is this place where you start to believe your own hype and you start to get very lonely, you get pushed up onto a pedestal. And right here, we're all equal. We're all shoulder to shoulder. And then suddenly, as you get more successful, society is determined because of their lack of, of self-worth. They start to put you on a pedestal. You get pushed up into society. You allow it to happen. And what happens is you get up here and you're on top of that pyramid and you look left and right. There's no one around you. And you start to believe all your own stuff and you believe you're invincible. And there's only one way from that pyramid down. And that is one ugly, horrible fall from grace. I always say to my clients, respect me if this is going to work, but don't you dare put me on a pedestal because I'm not that good. Mm. I gave you one last talk. Do you have one last, let's go positive, like a very hopeful, because the reality is this all positive. You have to get to that spot to get there. What would some kind of last word or some last words, something hopeful for the group? The one thing that drives me beyond anything is this notion of what's possible. And I believe that we hold on so tight to the things around us and the things we are and the things that we do and the places we live in and the relationships we're in and our identities. And all I would encourage you to do is let go a little bit of that, which is not negative at all. It might feel a little scary because what's possible for you lies just beyond that. And what's possible is this thing that even now I can feel it like just bubbling inside of me. When I sit in front of a human being who is stepping into my work, I'm just looking at them and thinking, what is possible for you that you cannot see in yourself or do not want to see in yourself? And for some that frightens them, I would say, please don't be frightened by that. Be intrigued by that and be curious. Curiosity is the thing that is, for some reason, we get a text, a fax, an email to say at 30, 40 or 50 years old, curiosity is something we should begin to let go of. Bullshit. Go back and be deeply curious about who you are, who you can be what you can do in this world. And I've been very privileged and fortunate to witness 
people reimagine parts of their lives and therefore impact even more people in their lives. And that is just incredible. And I believe that when we think about what's possible, you just have no idea how amazing and stunning and beautiful you can be in this world. I absolutely love that. One of my biggest mentors is Walt Disney. It's all about reimagining the world, but reimagining your life. And I think that is the big old reimagine your life, where it is now, where it can be. And Philip, you did that for me. One last talk. One of the most powerful books I've ever read. You're speaking. It blew me away. Where uh, can people learn more and connect with you? Because I'll tell you, everyone listening, this is the, one of the biggest impacts I've had ever. And I've read hundreds of books. This is it right here. So, Philip, where can they go? Well, thank you for that. OneLastTalk.com and PhilipMcKernan.com as well. But OneLastTalk.com is the place where we're beginning to create content and the podcast, uh, One Last Talk podcast and uh, the book and so on and so forth is there. Philip, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Business Done Differently with Jesse Cole, the Yellow Tux Guy. If you love the show, let Jesse know by leaving a review on iTunes or sending him an email at jesse at findyouryellowtux.com. For more information on the guest and topics of this episode, visit findyouryellowtux.com. Until next time, stop standing still, start standing out.